just getting creative, rolling your sleeves up, asking for it. I got paid to buy that thing and it's my best deal bar none. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast, and my name is Adam Adams. Today, I'm with Tyler Sheff. He buys small and medium-sized apartment buildings to cash flow with his investors, which um, has become something kind of niche because... When you're looking at properties that are a bit smaller than 50 units, you don't have quite the competition and you're able to buy with better cap rates. He's also got a podcast, which I hope that I can direct you to as as well. So Tyler, tell us a bit about what you're doing. What we do is, first of all, we acquire, like as you said, the small, medium-sized apartment buildings. We use 100% private capital and the stuff that we're buying usually is the type of stuff that the banks will run from. We've identified how to get really good in a niche in the the low-income housing space in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, also here in Florida. And here in Florida, we're more of a a C and and B-class product, but Memphis, we've got really good at low-income properties, kind of a trial-by-fire type scenario. Uh, But with those, we'll raise capital and we we, we acquire them cash and fix them up, stabilize them, and we hold them for long-term. Usually after a couple of years, what we'll do is replace the investor's capital with long-term institutional debt that makes sense. We're not about the short-term flipping or any of that. You know, we're, we're all about buying, holding, and, and making a difference for the long-term. That's kind of where we're at and what, how we've grown. How long did you say it takes you to be able to move your investor's capital out and the institutional capital in? Generally speaking, right around the three-year mark is when we start to, to cash them out. A lot of them want to be in short term. What we find, which is an interesting phenomenon, everybody wants to be out in five years or less. And what we find is that when everything is working great, they get, they get out, they can't find anything else to do with their money. So they wind up coming right back in on another deal anyway. Cause it's like, Good. you gave me your money back. What do you want? What do you want? And they're like, well, there's nothing out there, but why'd you want your money back? Well, cause I thought there was something out there, but there's not. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> so have you ever thought about doing a, a fund or do you do a fund? We have in the past, we're getting ready to open another fund for non-performing notes. Um, okay. Our second piece, as you know, you know, deal sourcing sometimes can be a challenge. And that is the case right now in, in the marketplace we're in is that there are inexperienced, there's a lot of what I call dumb money or inexperienced money out there in the street. I'm willing to buy. I know there's deals down in Miami that are even closed at a two cap. Wow. One cap. I, it doesn't even make sense. I didn't know you could go that low. I didn't know that was math was even possible to do. So when that's the case, when people are out there making careless purchases, we're not going to compete with them. We're going to go ahead and just let them run themselves bankrupt. We're going to focus on the numbers we invest for the long term. So either the numbers work or they don't, you know, for us. So for us, we shifted gears a little bit and we've taken some of our investment capital and those investors have decided to get on board with us in the non-performing note space. And now we're actually using non-performing notes as a way to get our hands on long-term multifamily properties. By Instead of going in the front door, we essentially go in the back door by buying the debt. And so far, that's worked out quite well for us. How do you find that debt? Like, what, Where are you going? What type of institution to find those uh, properties that way? The big banks. Uh, my, I have a partner who's really good at, I'll call it rocking a boardroom. She, she can really get people's attention. And, and we have a reputation of we always close. In other words, if we make an offer, unless there's something major in due diligence, you can bet your, your, your checkbook on the fact that we're going to close. Having that reputation 
We get some really good treatment from asset managers and from the bigger banks. A lot of the bigger banks are ignored by the little guy, the note investor, because they think it's that they won't talk to them. And in a lot of cases, that's unfortunately the case because they're not persistent enough. You know, they're not spending time developing those relationships. We've got relationships where we've been courting uh, certain banks for a year, two years before we even get an opportunity to buy from them. Uh, and that's allowed us to be quite successful in the note space. So. And when you're talking about big banks, um, what, what would be the top three that you normally go to? Um, we, got, we do what we've dealt so far with Wells Fargo. We've dealt with Bank of America, a lot of the old countrywide paper uh, that's been out there, and uh, Chase Bank as well. We've dealt with Chase Bank. So we've been quite successful dealing with those. And a lot of the smaller banks as well, the local regionals, uh, credit unions, things like that. Uh, they are a different breed and they're actually a little easier to deal with than a lot of the bigger banks are. Interesting. Sounds like you say you go and use um, Chase, Bank of America, uh, Wells Fargo, but it sounds like you have to go to a lot of different ones. So what, what level are you getting to, to these banks to talk to them? Um, is it the community level? Yeah, it's so the, the bigger banks, the bigger assets, they have asset, asset management departments. In other words, they, they have a, a team of people that dispose of, of assets, whether they be toxic or otherwise performing non. Um, and it's those people that are our reach. So we're not necessarily going to flying to Rockefeller Center to have a meeting with the president of Bank of America, but we are dealing with somebody in their, in their risk mitigation or their, their asset management division. How far are they up in the food chain? It's hard to say because I don't exactly understand the complete organizational structure of the bank, but uh, generally these are people that, are, that can make the decisions. Our target person is the asset manager that can make the decision on a go, no-go on, on selling a, a tape or, or releasing a tape so we can take a look at it. So that's, that's where we're at. Cool. How many partners do you have? I know you said it's you and then you have a, a woman that works with you as well. Is there anyone else? There's three of us. We've got uh, Paige, myself, and Joseph. And, and Joseph is the technical guy. He's the guy that really is good at, at taking the data and then taking that data and breaking it down to, into small nuggets so we can separate kind of the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, the good from the bad. That's his expertise. Paige is all about uh, building the relationships with the asset managers, overseeing the operation. She's the day-to-day -day person. I like to think of her as the brains of the operation. And I'm the guy that goes out and I look for uh, joint venture partners and things like that that want to invest with us. Is that part of what you get out of doing the podcast? It is. We, the podcast initially was a way for us to, I stepped out of real estate for five years, went to work for the government. You know, real estate investing as well as I do that when you step out for a period of time, you become stale, non-existent. If you're not actively out there doing it, people forget about who you are. So the, the podcast, number one, uh, was a, way for me to communicate my frustrations and my challenges getting back into real estate. That was the first priority. I wanted people to realize that you can do this, but there are challenges. The second piece of that was I needed to position myself in the community once again, because I'd been out of it for five years. So by doing that, by default, I wound up attracting a lot of capital. I wound up attracting, attracting a lot of opportunity as well, but far more capital have I attracted than I, than as compared to opportunity, which is great. I mean, that's outstanding. The beauty of podcasting, what I've found is that people really get to know me because, you know, when you've knocked out coming up on, we're, I don't know, we're at like 140 or 50 episodes by the time this goes live, people really get to know you. And, you know, 
there are some schools of thought out there that say fake it till you make it, but I'm sorry, you can't fake it a hundred times. It's like, you know, people really understand that, okay, this guy probably has a clue what he's doing because nobody's that good at, at uh, making things up. It's like, here's my entire life. So you build that, yeah. trust, you know, through the podcast. Yeah, I, I agree with that a lot. On, on your podcast, is it mostly just you or are you bringing in uh, pe- like people like, like I am interviewing? It, it's probably about 80% me, 20% interview. Here's the thing. I, I take a ton of action. And because I'm human, I make a ton of mistakes. So because I make a lot of mistakes, I got a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> the more mistakes I make, I'm like, you know, my audience will probably benefit from not doing that dumb thing. So I'm going to go ahead and make an episode out of it. And that's how I come up with a lot of my content. It's like, hey, this happened last week. And I don't suggest you try that. Instead, do this because this actually works. The other way, no bueno. You know, yeah, no good. I like that. I uh, like that a lot. Do you ever, um, what do you think about making your content about questions that your audience is asking you? We have had some special episodes where we take audience questions from the field. It's interesting. We haven't done it in a while. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I did one last week, but they're hit and miss because a lot of the questions that we get, because I think what one thing we do with our show is I connect on a real personal level with people. Because I'm an average guy. I'm not anybody special. I'm not Grant Cardone or any of that. I'm just a regular guy. I make all the same dumb mistakes that everybody else does. I have to work just as hard as everybody else, right? So because of that, a lot of the questions I get are very personal in nature. And one of the challenges I've had, I'll be honest with you, is trying to answer the question without embarrassing the person. You know what I'm saying? Because like, well, I can't mention your name. And this is a very unique situation. And I ask them, can I use your name? Or how much can I share? And usually they're not giddy about you know, they let people, we, we are a Facebook generation where all we're willing to share is our highlight reel, right? We're not willing to share our, our the dark moments, so to speak. Yeah, that, I, I see that a lot. Um, what about, um, do you have a Facebook page or something that's connected to this, to your podcast? I do. Actually, I've got two Facebook business pages. One is for Cashflow Guys as a brand in general, and then I have the Cashflow Guys podcast page. That's where I do a lot of my uh Facebook lives and things like that. I'll do some Q and a on Facebook live. I'm a big believer in, I, I know that my audience is where I was not too far, not too long ago, uh, especially in multifamily. I've only been in the multifamily space since 2014. I've learned a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes, but they have a lot of questions. So I feel the best way for me to ask, answer those questions is to try to get live with them because when the emails come over, it's like, well, I can answer that, but I need, the answers to 10 more questions before I can answer your one question. So instead of guessing, because I'm terrible at guessing, I'm not that smart, I will try to do live sessions quite, quite common or quite often and go live and tell people when I'm going to go live. I'll hit my list and say, I'm going to be live in my group and whatever. And that way they can ask me questions live so that I can ask supplemental questions like, what's the best way to invest in real estate? Well, that depends. What have you already done? You know, I don't want to tell you it's, it's, multifamily if you've already bombed out of multifamily because you don't like managing property or something like that. So sometimes I'll need that supplemental information and that, that going live helps me a lot with that. I can interact with them. Uh, that's, that's really good. Um, so let me ask you one more question before we get into our final five. Um, when you are uh, reaching out to your audience, as you mentioned, to get them to come to your Facebook live, what in what way do you do that? Is this an email blast or is this, how do you do that? It's a combination. I, I invested a great amount of time to get a, lot, a decent amount of likes on my, 
my fan pages. So based on that, I've got a couple thousand people on there liking and then my personal profile. So I'll put posts out on Facebook saying, hey, I'm going to go live at such and such a time. But when I remember, which is not all the time, I will also send a, an email out to my list to let them know, hey, guys, I'm going to go live on Tuesday at, at three o'clock. Bring your questions. We're doing that right now with notes because notes is a big mystery to a lot of people. So we're getting ready to do a series of Q&As live on Facebook to cover non-performing notes so that more people can understand it without having to spend $40,000 for some guru course to teach them how to do something that realistically they could learn on YouTube. So. Yeah, <laughs> you're providing the service, you're helping a lot of people, and I'm sure you're getting a lot of value out of it. What I've noticed anytime I'm answering questions, I, I, uh, you know, I learn more than probably anybody listening. So. Absolutely. It helps you perfect your craft. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am in real estate right now if it wasn't for helping my community and teaching them. And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of questions I don't know the answers to. And this forces me to stay sharp. I have to consistently research and learn so that when questions come, I have the answers for them. So for me, it's an exercise in accountability, which I thoroughly enjoy. I thrive off of it. Great. Are you ready for the final five? I'm ready. Hit me. All right. We'll get right into the final five. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode of the Creative Real Estate Podcast is brought to you by both you and brought to you by the show itself. And we just wanted to say thank you, Jason. I really appreciate having you as a listener. And we have an ask. We've got a quick ask. If you have uh, been listening to the show for a little while, you love the show, and you haven't taken the time to leave a rating and a review, I just wanted to ask to see if you wouldn't mind uh, going into iTunes and doing a written review as well as a rating. Um, so that's our only ask. Let's get back to the show. Number one, what's the most creative deal you've done? Probably the most creative is also the most boring. I bought a fourplex. I used a VA mortgage. I was able to negotiate with the lender, the seller who was a listing agent. This was an MLS deal. I got this thing literally with zero money out of pocket. I actually walked out of closing with a check for $1,700. That was in 2014. That property doubled in value in the last three years. And uh, it's now worth 429,000. I bought it for 210. And it generates $5,000 a month in net passive income because I use two of the units are uh, short-term rentals, vacation rentals. My wife and I live in one, so I get a free place to live. The other one is a long-term and it's been an absolute cash cow ever since. So just by asking for, Hey, you know, I had a buddy get a real estate commission on it. And then he credited me back that money to the deal, just getting creative, rolling your sleeves up, asking for it. I got paid to buy that thing and it's my best deal bar none. Let's go into that a little bit more. You found it on the MLS. Yep. Um, um, how, and you found it because your buddy who's a real estate agent. Actually, I am a licensed agent. And at the time, I had let my license lapse when I went to work for the government. I was a merchant mariner. I was out at sea, so I didn't need my license. I let it lapse. And I was going to buy another duplex, but we got screwed out of the deal because somebody had, uh, we were under contract and the seller decided to sell it to somebody else for 50000 more. I figured karma would be the best educator there. I wasn't willing to fight it and hire an attorney and all that. So I'm here I am. I'm pre-approved. I got to find another property. We run out and find this fourplex only because they had a for rent sign out front. We needed a place to live because we had to move out of the duplex we were trying to buy. Fast forward to, I've got a buddy that has a real estate license, right? So I brought him in as the designated agent on the deal, even though he's a friend of mine. I don't really need his representation. I know what he's doing or what I'm doing. He in turn credited me his commission. He gifted me his commission at the closing table. I got the lender to give me lender credits. I got the title company to reduce all the junk fees, eliminate that. 
And by doing that, and of course, I got the seller to pick up a lot of my closing costs. I actually generated a check for 1700 bucks at closing because I was due rent credits uh, and deposit credits and things like that. So I actually walked out of there with a check, a true no money down deal. So that was awesome. That is awesome. How did you talk to your, uh, the title company to get them to get rid of junk fees? Could you walk our listeners through that? Sure. Being a realtor, the one thing I've spent a lot of time doing, unlike a lot of realtors, unfortunately, is I read the closing disclosures and I ask a lot of questions because I'm curious. Now I've been a realtor for 18 years, so I've done thousands of transactions over the years. Um, maybe, maybe a thousand, not, maybe not thousands, but anyway, I digress. Title companies make their money by charging fees. That's just how they make their money. They sell title insurance. So the state in Florida, the state mandates what the title insurance rates are. No title company can change that. They can't add or they can't take away. So if they want to make more than the next guy, then they're going to add things like FedEx fees and all these extra fees. Those fees can add up to sometimes tens of thousands of dollars uh, in closing costs. Every one of those fees are negotiable. Most of those services are negotiable and the fees for those services are negotiable. So when I learned that many years ago, I've always done that anyway for my buyers. I can't tell you, I've probably had a hundred transactions where my buyers have walked out of closings with a check, mainly by looking at what the lender's charging and what the title companies are charging and fighting back. Um, I'm all about people making money, but I believe there's a fine line. In other words, how much money does a title company need to make? How many hours are wrapped into a transaction for them? Is it three hours? Okay, so is $20,000 realistic for a three-hour service that really revolves around buying a piece of property? It's not like they're saving lives or curing cancer here. You know, we're, we're just doing a title search. I can do, have my own title search done for 300 bucks. So, yeah. you know, things like that. So um, how much was it going to be and how much did it end up being because you asked? It was going to be, I think it was started out at $19,000. I got it down to like 2,800, I believe it was total. That's great. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing. Question number two, what book would you recommend? I don't know if you guys have heard of this one or not, but it's called Equity Happens. And it's written by two of my favorite guys in the world. I think they're awesome. The Real Estate Guys. It's Robert Helms and Russell Gray from the Real Estate Guys podcast. It, they put it out in 06, I think it was. It's out of print currently. They keep teasing us saying they're going to update it. I wish they would. Uh, but I will say this little hack for your audience. If you want to buy the book, it's called Equity Happens. Go on Amazon, put it in your shopping cart, but don't check out. Because sometimes the book is as much as 100 bucks. Wait for it. As more people post their old used copies, the price drops. And when it gets down to about 30 to 40 bucks, pull the trigger and buy it. Because I don't think you'll get it cheaper than that. Great. Thank you for sharing. Okay, so uh, question number three. Where were you five years ago? And where will you be in five years from today? Five years ago, I was in the middle of the ocean working on a government research ship as an able-bodied seaman, um, getting the you-know-what beat out of me because at the time it was 14, negative 14 degrees outside. It was 30 knot winds and I was in 20 foot seas wondering if I'm going to live to see the next, the next sunrise, so to speak. What am I doing to myself? I'm never going to retire at this age. And then I, I, that was the last trip I took to sea. I quit my job. I took six months paid vacation, got back into real estate. I had to make us, I had to re replace that big six figure income I was making. I was able to do that in a very short period of time by massive action. And then the rest is history. That's where I am today. As far as where will I be five years from today? My wife has MS and which is the debilitating disease, neurological disorder. 
we are not going to fall for the what I call the great American lie. We're not going to work 40 years or 50 years all of our life till we get old and then retire and try to have a good time on less money. We did a paradigm shift and said, no, we're going to make our money now and have our fun now by buying cash flowing assets. It's not about flipping houses for us, right? So we did that. We quickly built our portfolio. We've got a very robust portfolio that's extremely profitable, met all of our goals. Now it's about having fun and it's about educating other people. This, this summer, I'm writing a book. I'm actually going to write a series of books on one of them is going to be my journey and how I went so far so quickly in mindset behind real estate investing. Nobody has talks about that. And that's the reason why most people fail is up here. It's all in the brain why they fail. And I've learned a lot, especially in the last two years about that topic. And that's helped me supercharge. I want to help other people supercharge. So five years from now, just bought 25 acres in the woods. I'll probably be up there running around and on the four-wheeler and just having a good time. Thank you for sharing. And the, the next one is basically how you give back. But it, it sounds like you've shared that with us uh, more than once today. You've shared you know, you have the podcast to give back to other people. Whenever you make a mistake, you hop on and you tell people how not to make that mistake. You're now writing a series of books. Is there another thing you would like to touch on, on how you give back? There is. And it was, this was a recent awakening as of as late as this week. It's called Operation Underground Railroad. It's a charity. I've never really given to charities except for maybe the Cancer Society in the past. For various reasons, I don't trust a lot of them. I think they're in it for profit and not in it for help. But I saw this charity, Underground, Operation Underground Railroad, and it's a not-for-profit that helps. It's a former, I think, CIA agent that started this entity to help. I didn't realize that child trafficking was an issue in this country, that the U.S. is the largest consumer of child trafficking, sex trafficking, which was blew my mind. I'm a former police officer, so I, I can't imagine that that goes on in this, in this country. And what they do is they raise money to go out and they, they'll steal these kids and they take them to foreign countries and do terrible things. Well, this charity raises money to go grab these kids in the middle of the night and bring them back home because unfortunately the governments get caught up in the bureaucratic red tape and the kids live in a torturous hell. This charity um, goes back and gets these kids and brings them back home. Mind-blowing thing. And I learned about it at uh, a seminar called Funnel Hackers Live in Orlando. It was put on by ClickFunnels. So Operation Underground Railroad, you got to go check it out. They got a documentary and a trailer and whatnot of what's going on. I didn't know it. I never knew it existed before. It's totally my, my why. Wow, Tyler. I had no idea about that. Last question. You have a podcast, and I really appreciate you going into more detail about it. And you're also writing a, a book series. So how do the listeners get a hold of you? Best way to reach out to me is through my website, and that's cashflowguys.com. Guys is plural, cashflowguys.com. Uh, you can get access to my YouTube channel, my podcast. You can read my blog posts. You can even instant message me right from that website. So that's the best way to get me. Tyler Chef, thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you going over your strategy with small and multifamily properties, the way your company is structured, and, and the role in the company which you play with the podcast. I really like that creative deal that you did with your personal residence that you bought for 200K and walked away at closing with a check in your hand. And today it's doubled in value and making you 5K passive income. Thanks for being on the show. Until next time, think outside the box.
Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box.